say what you will about the book, lob all of the kind of legitimate criticisms you want at it. That's precious and rare. And fuck you for sort of reducing it down to its theoretical yeah. propositions. Fuck you, like the guy who reviewed it in the New York Times, who's like, well, he didn't adequately point to the history of Asian American activism. And I'm like, you're missing the point. Like, <laughs> all of these are fair criticisms in a sense. But here you are, you're a book critic or you're a reader in the world. And so much of what comes across your plate is just mediocre crap right? Maybe theoretically correct or theoretically defensible, but just there's no excitement to reading it. There's no sense of a really alive mind at work. And here, once in a while, you get something that's yeah. like exciting. And that's mostly what we should be saying. Welcome to Eminent Americans, a podcast and newsletter about the contemporary American intellectual scene and the people, places, platforms, paradigms that constitute it. My guest today on the podcast is John Pistelli. So welcome, John. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you. So John is a critic, novelist, and sort of academic, and that sort of is something we'll talk about who lives in the Twin Cities area in Minnesota, not far from my younger brother. So John and I have two things on our agenda for this episode of the podcast. The first is Wesley Yang, the author of the 2018 essay collection, The Souls of Yellow Folk, and arguably the single most influential writer of the past decade when it comes to, I think, articulating the basic premises of the more, what I would call the more substantive anti-woke perspective. John and I both wrote early reviews of Yang's book, and both of us have remained relatively close Yang Watchers, which is an interesting uh, and I think fruitful endeavor. The other thing on our agenda is a totally different thing, which is the emergence of a newly influential cohort of writer intellectual types who earned their PhDs in humanities fields, I think in particular English and English adjacent departments, but are now exerting influence on the intellectual scene primarily through non-academic channels. So they're writing for high or middle brow magazines like The Point and Compact, American Affairs, tablet, a few others, or as in uh, John's case, they're almost entirely autonomous, writing the vast majority of their words for their own websites and newsletters. John's newsletter is called Grand Hotel Abyss. I think it's also a Tumblr and maybe a website too. It's a multi-platform uh, empire. <laughs> so some of these folks have academic posts, but they're often kind of on the margins of academia. So John, for instance, teaches adjunct at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. Uh, another writer who we might talk about a little bit, Justin E.H. Smith-Rue, is at the City University of Paris. Other folks have left the academy entirely. One of my former guests and somebody who John and I both follow, Blake Smith, got his PhD, did a bunch of postdoc type stuff, but now is just a freelance writer. So the idea that these people constitute a coherent group, I should say, is very much a hypothesis in progress. When I described it to John in my email to him, inviting him on the podcast, I described it as a very wobbly, inchoate hypothesis. So my hope is that it'll be slightly less wobbly and inchoate by the end of our discussion. If that is the case, it will primarily be due to John's clarity of mind versus my just kind of uh, rambling intuition. John is the author of four novels, The Class of 2000, The Quarantine of St. Sebastian House, Portraits and Ashes, and The Ecstasy of Michaela as well as diverse short fiction, poetry, literary and cultural criticism that has appeared in many venues. And he writes, as I mentioned before, he writes a weekly newsletter on literature, culture, and politics at Substack. He has a fifth novel that is coming out that is being serialized on his Substack, Major Arcana. And I reached out to John after Blake, who I mentioned before, 
wrote a whole post that was just about how great John is as a writer and critic. Um, this is notable in particular coming from Blake, who much more often writes about people he thinks are terrible. So writing about somebody he thinks is great uh, is, a, is high praise indeed. So John, thanks for coming on and I appreciate you doing this. Thanks for that great introduction. <laughs> so I wanna start with Leslie Yang, just cause that's the thing that most obviously unites the two of us. And let me start by asking, what drew you to Yang? As far as I know, you published your review of Souls of Yellow Folk just, just on your own Tumblr and website and Goodreads. And it's a really brilliant review. What was your sense of him before that book came out? Why did you kind of get a hold of the book and think it was worth dedicating some of your intellectual energy to? Um, it's a good question because that was like six years ago now. Um, I think I just, I think I had seen some of the last pieces in the book where he was criticizing some of the emerging social justice stuff. I think I had seen those at Tablet. And I had read some of the early N Plus One magazine material, but I had not remembered. If I'd read it, I didn't remember the face of Cho Sung Wee. So I, that was something I only found in his book. And I thought he was an interesting kind of presence on Twitter as well. And so I thought, this is an interesting take on the subject of social justice coming from somebody writing from a kind of minoritarian experience. And I think the the hook of my review, which did end up getting published in The Spectator in a revised form, uh, which they never paid me for, by the way, and I will say that, I will say <laughs> so that you, on the record. <laughs> but, so you wrote it for yourself and then it, put it out there and then did they reach out to you up. or did you just kind of pitch it a few places? No, they reached out to me. Oh, that's interesting. Um, okay. So it got published in kind of a redacted form in The Spectator and the headline ended up being my line about this might be the first manifesto of the next neoconservatism. Oh, yeah. And and this is funny. This is a little human interest. Um, I I gratuitously insulted your review in my review. <laughs> yes. Um, it, which is funny because I, I, I obviously had barely read it and was just kind of making fun of the fact that it had been published in Quillette, which I associated with a kind yeah. of you know, empiricism or positivism or something. So I, I having been raised Catholic, I had to do double penance. I reread your review <laughs> with a more clear mind and I have your book here. Uh, uh, this is, uh, that's the second, oh, that's nice, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I'm reading your book and I just finished the Norman Podhoritz chapter, yeah. uh, which, because your book, Exit Right, is about um, six people Five intellectuals and Ronald Reagan uh, right. who left. Uh, I can't justify life. that at all, but yeah. No, yeah. it was fine. I, I I enjoyed the Reagan chapter, but it ends with Norman Podhoritz's vision of the family tree in the sky. Yeah. And I had not actually read that. His mystical, his mystical vision of the yeah. family tree in the sky. Yeah. Out of left field. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, oh, this might be another, because I, I was aware of Norman Podhoritz yeah. and had read some of his work. So I thought, Maybe Yang is another Norman Podhoritz-like figure. This could be a signal of another shift in our political culture analogous to, to the rise of neoconservatism. So I had a very distinct sense of Yang before the book came out and was excited to see the book because I had read that piece in N Plus One, The Face of Song Hee Cho, who was the Virginia Tech shooter who was Korean-American, as Yang is Korean-American. And I remember being so blown away by that piece, which I think came out maybe in 2008, and just having that utter conviction at that moment, which I have very once in a while, that this is an important figure. 
this guy, I've never heard of him before. He published a few things, but he was nobody of note before that essay. And it came out and I thought it was so kind of intensely brilliant. It's such a pitch of brilliance for such a sustained period of time. There was no question but that he was going to be a big thing. And not just, it wasn't just that he was so smart, but he was also talking about things that, as far as I can tell at the time, nobody was talking about from the sort of angle that he was sort of spending fruitful time in this tension between, on the one hand, having the very acute experience of being a minority in America and suffering all the psychological injuries as a result of that, and then at the same time aware that the politics that that can produce can be counterproductive. And I think even in maybe in one of his later pieces, he said charged with authoritarian potential. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought there was nobody who was sort of occupying both of those spaces at once. How Quillette comes in is I wrote the piece and nobody wanted it. I mean, he was already beginning to be out of favor, I think because of those pieces that he had written for Tablet, which were very critical of social justice politics. I don't know if it was known as wokeness yet, but what would become known as wokeness. I thought that the appetite for a glowing, pretty glowing review of Yang was was close to zero. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to go to the real right. I didn't think of Quillette as like a real right wing publication. I thought of Quillette as in this kind of middle space. Yeah. Uh, also, Quillette is one of those lovely magazines that basically doesn't edit you if your sentences are clean. Oh, uh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's now, like I... if your sentences are clean, they're just like, looks good. To some extent, quantity over quality. They may have gotten more uh, refined in their attitude then. But at the time, it was just like, if it's solid, it goes. Uh, they're, I think, less controversial now than they were then. I've seen all sorts of people publish in there. Now, I ended up publishing my review in in The Real Right with The Spectator yeah. just because they asked. But again, don't envy me because they didn't pay. <laughs> so um, I did get my check. I think Colette was very good at sending me my check. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm surprised you hadn't read that N plus one piece before. I mean, you obviously read the 2008 one on the Virginia Tech shooter because you obviously very much in your review, you kind of latched onto it as in some sense the Rosetta Stone of of the book, but also of Yang in his project. Tell me your your thoughts on the book. You were, I think, more critical than I was, though not in a not in a, at all in a sort of gratuitous way. I think my main critique of the book was that it wasn't much of a book. It, it, it yeah. was sort of just a collection of occasional pieces that didn't maybe didn't merit such a grand title. I think the the line I ended up drawing in my review was that there is a profile on Fukuyama in the book. And I said, well, the through line there might be that Yang's ultimate kind of like anthropology of the human being is that we're out for recognition. Yeah. And that his other profiles of figures like Asian American men in particular trying to rise up through corporate structures and hitting the bamboo ceiling, as he describes in the essay, Paper Tigers, or the pickup artist community that he also has an essay on, that these are kind of misdirected. Um, They're not being recognized. So they're heading toward these kinds of like Darwinian power and status games. Yeah. Whereas the quest for recognition as Fukuyama describes it, which he gets from uh, Hegel, the philosopher Hegel, um, is really what motivates people more. And so if you could in some way establish a means by which people could attain recognition and this is a vision he shared with the, the so-called social justice warriors. That would be the ultimate kind of utopian end goal of society. Um, 
And so that's what gives him his unique sympathy with the social justice people. But he also ends up describing them as similar to pickup artists, school shooters, uh, ambitious corporate agents as people who have misrecognized their quest as one, in fact, for power. Yeah. And I think also, I think this is more in your review than in mine, that, you know, there's that line that this particular type of quest for recognition is charged with authoritarian potential. Right. And, and what I took that to mean, you know, and he's discussing things like microaggressions, small or subtle slights, or things that manifest only through kind of statistical analyses of disparities, uh, a lot of stuff around language and both seizing onto language that seems impolitic or insensitive and raising that up to the level of grievous slight, but also identifying new words or identifying language and renaming things as a mechanism for wielding power mm-hmm. is that when we get to the level of our recognition requires not just that you speak in a certain way, but that you think in a certain way. Ultimately, it delves down into the soul of the potential oppressor. The only way to actually bring that kind of utopia into existence is through extraordinary coercion. Yes. We're no longer talking about issues of sort of tangible, concrete actions and prohibiting discrimination or prohibiting use of force against somebody. We're talking about controlling their language the words they use, which just yesterday, as far as they knew, were the okay words to use and now are not the words to use, trying to get down into their thoughts with issues of kind of white privilege and Robin DiAngelo stuff and Peggy McIntosh stuff and Ibram Kendi stuff, where what you're trying to do is create a world in which nothing happens to somebody that makes them feel kind of a wound to their sense of respect in any, almost in any way, and that the only way to do that is through coercion. Right. And that might be the segue to where Yang is now, if you wanted to go there, um, because his online presence now, he hasn't published another book um, since then and mostly doesn't write essays uh, He has a substack, though he does a lot of interviews and things like that. But he's very much involved in the gender discourse now. Yeah. And I think the way you just described his concern about where racial discourse was in the mid-2010s, I think does evoke his concerns about gender. He's kind of, I don't want to mischaracterize him, but I I would say he's on the gender critical side, um, kind of hosts a lot of gender critical feminists and things like that. He often invokes this idea. It's very... Orwellian, that is in the sense of Orwell's own views, not an Orwellian dystopia, but he often invokes reality, that they're trying to change our perception of reality. They're trying to revoke our ability to say two plus two equals four, or or that's that's a man. I see that that's a man, and I should be able to say that that's a man. And it seems to me that that's I don't know. I I agreed with what he was saying in 2018, but I feel like it's drifted into a kind of naive empiricism. Yeah. You know, Foucault wasn't wrong about everything. You know, (laughs) you can't just say two plus two equals four. I don't don't know that we do have that kind of unmediated access to reality. Or sexuality or gender. Or gender, yeah. This was kind of something that I wrote about in my review, which is a little bit psychobiographical in a sense, which my book is too, which is looking at the arc of 
I was going to say Yang's career, but I, but, but I, but what I'm layering on top of that in some sense are some intuitions about the arc of Yang's psyche. Mm-hmm. So he writes this 2008 essay. It does make a big splash. He ends up getting a lot of assignments. I think one of those subsequent essays collected in the magazine, whether it's the one on, I think there's one on Amy Chua, the Asian American writer. There's the one on the, the bamboo ceiling. One of them wins a national magazine award. He gets these big assignments from big glossy magazines. And then he semi disappears for a while. And he makes it clear in later blog posts or something that there was there were personal issues and I don't know what they were, but he doesn't continue on the trajectory he seemed to be on. And then he comes back into the mix in a much more energetic way with this stuff that he's doing for tablet, this column that he wrote for maybe a year or two called Meme Wars, where he's really articulating a lot of the more sort of contemporary stuff about critique of the social justice movement. And then in a sense, almost the same thing happens. So his essays for Tablet get a lot of attention. They start exerting a lot of influence. He coins the term successor ideology to refer to kind of this new body of theories and language that, you know, is maybe synonymous with wokeness in some way. And that becomes something that's referenced a lot that I think has influence on a lot of people. He starts getting assignments again. He starts getting the magazine assignments again. And then once again kind of stops writing, basically. And I don't know if you got his substack, but there was this sort of recurring pattern in his substack, I'm not sure one he was conscious of, where he'd talk about, well, I'm working on a multi-part series of essays about Mm -hmm. this issue. I mean, he was always promising a lot of big, kind of decisive, authoritative essays on different topics. Yes. That... That Just was, like Norman Podhoritz, by the way, uh, yeah, right. as you emphasized in your book. Right. <laughs> and they almost never materialized and the pace of his production kind of slowed. And he and he mentioned some, I think, he, whether it's some book contracts or just some book ideas, which is not to say none of that will ever occur. But there is clearly a pattern, I think, which in some simplistic way you could just call writer's block. And he's migrated more and more towards things that are sort of evasions of writing in a way. Right. It's social media. It's. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of podcasting. He was doing one of those apps, I think the call-in app, where he just has like kind of conversations with people, including just callers who call in. And at the same time, with the comparison to Pedoritz, he has seemed to, I would say, to drift to the right, like where I thought he was sort of operating with this exquisite tension between an empathy for the perspective of people on the social justice left but also a sort of well-formed critique of the dangers of what kind of politics that could produce. It seems like he's just an anti-trans ideology activist at this point. Right. And I often would note that one of his techniques on Twitter, which is a smart technique, is that he'll ask a seemingly naive question to kind of draw out the latent assumption of his interlocutor. But at one point he had said, when did you first hear that a woman could have a penis? And all of the responses, almost every single one was, you know, in the last three years, it came from Tumblr, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, well, I mean, aren't aren't bookish adults? Didn't we read adult books as adolescents? I remember reading The World According to Garp, you know, mm-hmm. when I was yeah. 14. And we, that's, I mean, you'd say that's where I first heard a woman could have a penis. And that was published in 1978. And John Lithgow would played the role very well in the movie. It, it, so it seems like it's drifting into this. I'm not saying he needed to read that one particular book. It's just- No, but I agree. Formed naivete about how old some of these ideas are, how old these conversations are. And, you know, I myself think there are questions to be asked about 
things like the medical medicalization of gender nonconforming youth. I think that could be a legitimate discussion, but you don't want to become a kind of crude <laughs> ideologue that, that doesn't have a very clear sense of how how complicated or nuanced or how long a history these conversations have had. Well, and it's, it's interesting, I think it's the end of your review. You're talking about Yang focusing on trying to find a politics that can properly deal with this question of recognition, this kind of Fukuyama by way of Hegel question of recognition. And your turn at the end, which I didn't see coming, and I think was really interesting, was to suggest that maybe that was the wrong question for Yang as a writer. You can correct me if this is a misinterpretation, but that this was the wrong question from your perspective that Yang should be asking himself as a writer. And in a sense, it mistakes his project for a political one when in fact it should be a literary one. And so this is kind of how I think of Yang too, which is you're right, of course, like there are ways in which his politics have shifted to be more sort of vulgar and crude, but I would in a sense think the greater tragedy is the lost refinement of him as a writer. And you make this shift at the end of your essay to this idea that maybe he's mistaken what his challenge or his project should be. So can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I think what I was saying was that the quest for recognition was fundamentally a social quest. So he was seeking a fundamentally social result for his way of being in the world. Whereas often the literary sensibility has to endure a great deal of isolation, a great deal of non-recognition, especially now, you kind of have to do it for yourself. If you're doing it for the recognition, you're going to burn out or you're not going to get anywhere unless, I mean, there are cases of people who got a bunch of recognition early, but that proved harmful to them as well in so many cases. So this quest for everything that you do as a writer to be kind of directed outward toward the social field, and you want that field looking back at you, I thought was a bad sign for his prospect as a writer, because you don't have that kind of, for lack of a better term, antisocial inner drive to do the thing for the sake of doing it. And if there's a reward, there's a reward. And if there's not, but, and I do wonder if that hasn't, you know, played a part in some of what you were describing as his inability to follow through on some of the projects. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm going to shoehorn this into a frame that I'm kind of obsessed with, which is like what conditions have to hold for writers to stay in their maximally creative sort of fruitful spaces. And it seems to me like Yang at his best is kind of standing apart from the crowd, but he's able to sort of empathetically participate or inhabit multiple other perspectives at once. And that seems like that's not the only space that a real writer intellectual can hold, but historically it's an important one and it's one of the big ones. And it seems like his best stuff comes when he's able to kind of hold all of those things in tension I think what you're saying is a little more subtle than this, but the desire for social acceptance and a kind of normative recognition is one that that I think a writer has to let go of ultimately for themselves. That's a goal for a group, perhaps, but for a writer has to have a kind of existential isolation or something like that. And one way of reading what has happened to him has been that he has joined up with a team. Um, he's joined up with the sort of anti-trans ideology team and gets an enormous amount of affirmation and probably some degree of money. He gets affirmation and recognition of a sort for having joined that 
political team of a sort that I don't think he would have gotten had he been willing or able to stay in that almost contradictory space. Right. And there were those moments in the book where he's able to reconstruct the point of view of figures ranging from campus protesters to Cho Sung-wi. And then I'll just give you another example of a recent tweet. He had another tweet where he had posted a Instagram story of a transgender influencer. And she had said something like, and I'm not endorsing this statement, by the way, it's probably a problematic statement on its own, but she had said, I'm more a woman than a cis woman. They are just incidental women, but I had to become one. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a part of me that understands why that's offensive to a lot of people, but he just held it up for mockery. Is there not a part of him that sees an existential heroism? Here's an echo of Nietzsche or Emerson. Like, is <laughs> right. there, there, it's a complicated statement. Like, I don't, I don't know if you just want to point and laugh or if someone of his literary stature should just point and laugh. Yeah. And I, I mean, just to be an old fashioned kind of humanist about it, in some sense, we shouldn't point and laugh at anybody, right? This is another human being who at a minimum, whatever you think about their politics is inhabiting a sort of challenging, emotional, psychological, political space in our societies. And they may have been behaving immaturely and not above criticism, but maybe in some basic human sense above mockery, or at least, as you said, above mockery appropriate to that of a sort of leading writer or intellectual. Like there's (laughs) different standards for us as people who aspire to be serious writers than there is for a politician or an activist or a comic or something like that. I'm not saying it's never appropriate to mock people, but it doesn't behoove his stature or at least his former stature. The other thing is you referenced this quote from Baldwin, a power which outlasts kingdoms, that Baldwin wants his writing to have a power which outlasts kingdoms. Mm -hmm. Baldwin's another figure who arguably was not able to stay in that kind of maximally fruitful space, ultimately, that if you read a something like his early essays or A Fire Next Time, he's doing something very much what Yang is doing. A Fire Next Time, he goes and visits the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad in Chicago and really tries to think through from a sympathetic perspective, what is it that attracts people to this perspective? But then he also steps away from that and why it's not really a practical program for politics or really for one's own psychological development, that a lot of the attraction of that ideology is a kind of invasion from the real challenge of living as a person and as a Black person in a racist America. But Baldwin too, he goes in the other direction. He kind of embraces some of that ideology that he's so I think successfully and impressively resisted in interesting ways. And then Norman Podhoritz is another one (laughs) who tried to sort of operate in this space and runs into all this criticism from the left for doing what he's trying to do, which is not on the one hand or the other hand, but it's seeking both perspectives and trying to integrate them into a unitary one. And ultimately he experiences all this rejection and criticism from the left and has his mystical vision in the sky of the family tree and realizes that, I mean, I think he literally says that complexity is a mistake. Right. That henceforth <laughs> I shall embrace simplicity, including, to relate to the trans thing, including like the simplicity of this sort of, I guess, traditional kind of family structure. Mm-hmm. And then that, that goes on to root sort of decades of pretty uninteresting rejection of kind of gay rights. And I'm not even sure if he got to trans rights, but I'm sure his critique of that would have been uninteresting and kind of vulgar and a little bit mean-spirited. Right. Right. Yeah. The way I've worked it out for myself, I published a few political pieces in Tablet, ironically, last year. And then 
right around, it was kind of too poetically apt, not as poetically apt as having a vision in the sky, which I've unfortunately <laughs> never had. But one of my readers who will probably be listening to this and will think it's funny that I keep bringing this up, but did a tweet, which I found through name searching through vanity. <laughs> uh, I would never do that. I would never <laughs> Twitter for my name or right. titles of my books or anything like that. Exactly. Unheard of. Yeah. Um, and that's not, that doesn't behoove you as the writer of <laughs> the stature that you are. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, God knows you're right. Um, but the tweet was imagining me getting into a fist fight with another uh, trans intellectual because I represent a kind of, I'm a little bit leery of encroachment of the global technocracy or whatever you want to call it. And this person is more a champion of it. And it was ironic seeing this on New Year's Day or the day after New Year's. And I thought, yeah, I don't want to be in fistfights with anybody. I don't want to be imagined in a fistfight with anybody. Uh, I'm going to, I'm not going to, unless they really offer me a lot of money, I'm not going to write <laughs> a political piece this year. I'm going to focus on this novel which is in part about things like gender and technology, but I'm going to to use the traditional vehicle for exploring these things in their full embodied complexity, which for me is more the novel than the essay. And hopefully that will prevent my own turn toward any kind of brittle version of politics of the left or the right. I mean, it's almost never a good place for a writer to be, right? I'm sure one could come up with exceptions, but like getting in fights on Twitter, or really getting into the battles is almost like it's almost never a healthy place for yeah. a writer to be. I guess there's one last thing about your review of Yang that I wanted to get to before we kind of switch over to the other topic, because I thought this was really interesting and I hadn't seen much of this reframing of a certain kind of intellectual political history, which is you think that, that Yang frames sort of social justice, contemporary social justice politics as descending from, I don't know what, like post-structuralism sort of critical theory, French theory of the 50s, 60s, 70s, post-war French theory. You say he's got it wrong, that actually he's got the wrong genealogy for this stuff. Yeah. And that, so I think what I was saying there, um, and again, I was closer to graduate school then when I wrote that <laughs> than I am now, and I, I yeah. haven't read a lot of theory since then, but I think my argument was that it's precisely in that lineage that comes out of Hegel and into Marx, right. Hegel's view that the ethical life can only be lived collectively as embodied in the state. And I'm sorry if that's a brutal oversimplification for some of your <laughs> learned listeners, but that's my understanding of what Hegel was saying. That's ultimately where the problem with the social justice or woke mindset comes in is the authoritarianism is going to be vested in these state authorities or corporate authorities tantamount to state authorities. And it was really, I thought, Marx who first came up with the idea that becomes identity politics, which is that there's one group in society that is the bearer of revolutionary consciousness and they will take the state and they will this, take the state and in the process as you point out in the process kind of eradicate the sort of somehow the structure of like domination and oppression right they'll sort of eliminate the system from if you can find the most exploited people they'll eliminate the whole system of exploitation from the bottom up which if you read the combahee river collective statement from the 70s which was written by a group of black queer female academics who kind of popularized, if not invented the phrase identity politics, they positioned the black woman in that role. 
Yeah. And I think this is much more dangerous than the language question, because there's always going to be the struggle over language and representation in society. You're never going to get rid of that. But the authoritarian potential is really this relation between the idea of particular groups and the state. Yeah. And so that's what I thought. And I thought that if anything, the post-structuralists, insofar as I understand them, which is not always as much as I want to, I thought they were the ones who are critiquing that statism through, you know, in the in the French Communist Party or the legacy of Sartre. Uh, so they weren't the ones to blame particularly. Yeah, you quote from the Combahee River Collective, the sentence, if Black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all the systems of oppression. Yeah, uh, And then above, you quote Marx and Engels, if by means of a revolution, the working class makes itself the ruling class and as such sweeps away by force the old conditions of production, then it will, along with these conditions, have swept away the conditions for the existence of class antagonisms and of classes generally, and will thereby have abolished its own supremacy as a class. It's a notion, but really, I think we could say at this point in history, a fantasy that somehow when the least become most, they will no longer operate according to these sort of standard, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely sort of right. <laughs> operations of human behavior. For me, it was interesting because I have not been able to sort of articulate this in a meaningful way, but I see everybody locating the roots of like contemporary social justice politics in pretty recent movements, right? So in identity politics of the 70s, in post-structuralism, in theory, and having written a book that goes back roughly to the early 20th century that's in many ways about the 20th century left, I'm like, well, that doesn't feel right because this seems like another echo of a thing. Like we've seen this before. We've seen in some broad kind of historical cultural sense, this looks an awful lot like the stuff I wrote about in the 30s when it was the Communist Party that was mm -hmm. the kind of bearer of the left-wing energy. It looks an awful lot like the stuff you see in the 60s when it was the new left. And so it can't really be the case that it's like post-structuralism or French theory that is the origin of this stuff when it just, it all looked, I mean, I don't want to say exactly alike, but it, it's too similar in its dynamics. And I think your story makes a lot more sense of that. I'm not a student of like the 19th century left. So it would be interesting to go back to, let's say the 19th century in America, when I don't think Marx really had much of an influence and right. see whether you saw the same kind of patterns or if it's a dynamic that really only emerges after Marx becomes a meaningful influencer after, which is, I think, mostly after the 1917 revolution. Um, right. I mean, my sense of like the, what do they call it? The sort of early left of the 20th century. Um, the kind of, you know, 19, sort of anti-World War One. Oh, you, you use the phrase lyrical left. In lyrical left. <laughs> right. right. I don't know where I got the, thank you. See, you've read my book. Yes. <laughs> the lyrical left of the teens and 20s in the 20th century just didn't, it didn't have this vibe. It was much more of a kind of bohemian, mm. uh, I, I think sort of, in some sense, reform-minded. I don't think it was kind of revolutionary. I want to switch over kind of to our other topic, which I hope you will help blend clarity to, or just totally puncture this hypothesis as faulty, if that's appropriate. What I feel like is over the last five or 10 years, I've seen the emergence of just people getting referenced um, you know, in New York Times op-eds and their books getting reviewed in the New Yorker and the Atlantic and their ideas kind of bubbling up from below up into kind of broader, more mainstream discourse. 
of writers who have PhDs in English philosophy, complet, probably some other adjacent fields who are publishing in these not particularly mainstream sources, or as I said at the beginning, are just publishing themselves. This feels like a new phenomenon to me. And I mentioned when I was writing to you names like Blake Smith, who I talked about, Justin E.H. Smith. Uh, I mentioned some other ones. I'm trying to think of who else falls into this category. Jeff Schellenberger, who's now kind of doing his own thing and writing freelance and is now a compact mag. I think some of the people who are writing for American Affairs. I don't know. Who are some other names that you would throw into the mix, John? Um, I remember in your email, you had mentioned John Baskin from The Point, Becca Rothfeld, who I think she just became affiliated with something, but I don't remember. Washington Post. She's now a book critic at the Washington Post. To me, what's interesting or important about it is, is there a type of writing that emerges that begins to influence how other people are thinking through and seeing the world that simply in some sense didn't exist before. And so I think about the kind of work you do where you're often bringing in philosophy, literary theory. It's pretty cerebral stuff. It's not written in an academic style, but it's drawing on a lot of the sources that I think academics in certain fields would draw on, or maybe they drew on 20 years ago. And it's sort of associative in a way, it's essayistic in a way, it's unashamedly theoretical and philosophical when it needs to be. It will quote Marx, it will refer to Hegel, and this is just the, the Yang review. You talk about Kafka. I don't know where this would have showed up, say, 20 or 30 years ago. I guess my hypothesis is maybe this writing was happening, but it was being published in obscure literary journals that had no organic connection to other other venues, so they couldn't become part of the larger atmosphere, of larger intellectual atmosphere, because they couldn't be in dialogue with anybody else, other than maybe some of these journals had a small sort of isolated community of people who cared about what was happening in those journals. But it wasn't online. It wasn't something that could be linked to on Twitter. It couldn't have Blake writing a post about what you said or me doing a podcast in which I'm bringing you into conversation with Blake. So before the internet, before podcasting, before Substack, there were people who may have might have been inclined to write that way, but it was too highfalutin intellectual for the New Yorker, mm-hmm. maybe in some ways too sort of loose and associative for the New York Review of Books. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe the kind of person who would have done this kind of writing, you know, and, and maybe was in books. I mean, maybe that's the thing. Maybe a lot of it or versions of it were in were in books. But even then, it was hard for those books. And a few of a few really significant ones emerged as an influence. But it was hard for just more than a very few people to emerge as influences in a way. I think there's kind of two issues. So one is just the technological and communications infrastructure and its interaction with the collapse of the academic job market. So you have this diaspora of people with PhDs who aren't going to get tenure track jobs, which then removes the incentive for doing peer-reviewed writing, because why would you do anything like that? (laughs) (laughs) You didn't absolutely have to for your, you know, make your bread. Yeah. Right. And so you have these people, uh, these people, I'm one of them. You have these people with a great deal of this kind of training, but who are then coming out to address a broader audience. And that's now made possible by Substack, by by newsletters, by WordPress, by Twitter, by all sorts of things that now allow a kind of freelance intellectual who's decoupled from the university, which in a lot of ways I think is a good thing. That's something that I haven't seen 
talked about much because the people who would be equipped theoretically or intellectually to talk about it are usually in some degree of despair about the decline of sort of the job market. My position was always that something like art or literature is very is a very old <laughs> phenomenon that only very recently has survived by the patronage of the university. That's not anything that needs to be a permanent condition. We might find other kinds of ways to survive in other kinds of institutions. And so for me, I was always more loyal to literature than I was to the university, which just seemed to me you might just have to accept that had been a temporary shelter for it. Yeah. I'm not saying let the universities die. I'm not saying anything that broad, but at least for what I do, I'm willing to consider alternatives. So you're suggesting basically the golden age of post-war academia came to an end. There wasn't an ever-increasing number of undergraduates to fill the ranks of these colleges, and so there was no longer an increasing number of academic positions but they still, for a period of time, and I don't know if we're still in it, they were producing graduate students with PhDs as though there would be jobs for them. There simply weren't. And so there were decades, really, I think, when we were producing more humanities, liberal arts, social sciences, PhDs than we had real tenure track jobs for. So all of a sudden you're pushing all of these people outside of the academy, they no longer have to respond to the specific academic incentive structure of the academy, which at least until you get tenure, orients most of your intellectual creative energy towards producing within this very specific framework of peer review. So now they're out in the world. I mean, on the one hand, they have to go get a job and support themselves somehow in ways that don't fund their intellectual work in the same way. On the other hand, they have this reservoir of creative intellectual energy that they want to expend. Right. And right. so and and even the teaching function is starting to be move on to the internet with podcasts with YouTube. And I don't know what the future is going to hold. There are ways of monetizing these things. My success on Substack has been modest so far, but it's better than nothing. <laughs> um, yeah. And so hopefully these things will move forward because it doesn't seem like the academic humanities outside the elite institutions where they still have a legitimating function aren't they aren't doing very well it seems to me at the at other kinds of institutions so there's this group of people and it's interesting sort of thinking about what they do now of course they could go out with their phds and get nice well-paying jobs and forget about all that theory they learned or that history or the literature and plenty of them do right plenty of you do because you're one of these people but Many of them don't. Many of them want to keep thinking for a living or not for a living, but thinking as a kind of vocation, writing as a vocation, teaching as a vocation. And there's sort of emerged different venues to do that. I feel like I've seen critiques say, well, this is the source actually of a lot of like social justice ideology that actually, I mean, some of it's from the academy, but some of it is people who went through the academy and then got out and couldn't get a job in the academy and go out into the world of nonprofits and government and so on. But another one is this realm that I'm suggesting, which has been enabled by new technology, I guess maybe a very much simpler way to put it is why do you do it? What is its relationship to your making a living and supporting yourself? What motivates you? Why did you choose yeah. the platforms that you have? Um, I don't know how to answer it. I mean, if I could have a nine to five job, I would, but I can't. It's not my, <laughs> <laughs> I belong to the late nineties, early two thousands lyrical left. <laughs> to uh <-huh>. use that <laughs> phrase. I was always interested in a little bit in Bohemia and the Demimond and 
another phrase that Yang uses is I wanted to be an aristocrat of the spirit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so just for me, it's hard to say. It's just always what I've done. I've just been, yeah. I know a lot of people came to things late, but my dad was an artist. And so I started drawing little comic books when I was four. And so it's just always what I've done. I don't know what else I would do besides this yeah. kind of creative expression. I don't have any other, I don't have any other gifts. And so I do, I hold it together with adjuncting. I've monetized my online presence, other things like that. And I haven't, I haven't parlayed it into to the NGO world or anything like that. You're on a kind of few different platforms, but what's like in brief, this story of your adoption of these different technologies or platforms? That's another longstanding thing. I was on LiveJournal 20 years ago. So I've generally, whatever new one comes along, I adopt with the exception of Twitter. Mm -hmm. I've never tweeted. I've always been afraid of Twitter since an art student called me a white supremacist on Twitter in 2014 for not sufficiently appreciating manga. I thought, well, <laughs> I'm not going on there. So, <laughs> And it does seem to me, as we referred to in our Yang discussion, to, to be a coarsening influence on writers and intellectuals, maybe just because of the the short form that doesn't exist anymore. It's all walls of text now, but, and the way it encourages fighting. So I've stayed away from Twitter, but I've done WordPress, Blogspot, Tumblr, Goodreads, and now I'm putting a lot of energy into Substack. Wherever the readers seem to be, that's where I tend to go. And and for no money until Substack? Yes, no, Substack. I'm not advertising for the company, but that's the first time I said, okay, I'm bringing in a paywall for this serialized novel. And I thought, oh, nobody's going to do this. And I, I'm not making Matt Iglesias amounts of money on it or anything. But, uh, but yeah, it was the first time I've ever gotten any considerable output at all from a platform. Well, it's interesting just because I think one of the things that has happened as a result of sort of careers like yours, not, not that the lines between sort of amateur and professional aren't always blurred in many ways, but I think there has come into existence a much larger pool of writers who are, I had to put it this way, who are real writers in a way, who, who exist in sort of interesting ways kind of on the margin. And Substack in a way, I mean, I think it is notable for just like, it really has maybe for the first time created a way in which the sort of mechanism for self-publishing is not looked down upon as a kind of lesser kind of platform. I don't think you can look at Matt Iglesias or Andrew Sullivan or Heather Cox Richardson or Ted Joya or some of these people who were already big names in their fields and now are mm -hmm. sort of making a living. And, and, and there's just not even the jokes about bloggers in their pajamas in their basement or something like that. Right. And I think that on the other side of things, I don't know when you're going to release this, but Robert Gottlieb died yesterday. Oh, the, yeah. the editor who had been the editor for Toni Morrison and Cynthia Ozick and Michael Crichton. But that's not a sensible list, but he had been the editor for a lot of important people. Um, and my understanding, though, I, I haven't had direct experience of this, but the kind of close relationship between an editor and an author, there was this decades long close relationship and the editor would be a very learned literary person, not immediately concerned with the bottom line. It seems like Gottlieb was pretty much the last of that yeah. breed. So that kind of thing um, 
if, if I could put it this way, it's reduced the distinction between professional and amateur on the professional side too, because it seems like the product is less cultivated, less thought out, more commercial. Yeah. So. Yeah. Did you see the documentary about Gottlieb and Robert Caro? Have you seen that? I haven't seen that. No. Oh, you should see it. Turn every page. It's called. I, it's really great. It's really well done. But yeah, I mean, that's the sort of extreme version. I mean, these guys mm-hmm. work like 40 or 50 years in this intense. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, I've had good editors in a sort of nominal sense, but I've never worked with anybody who has like helped my writing in some meaningful sense. I right. mean, it's just not a, you know, and I've been a staff writer at one small alt-weekly paper and that person was important to me in a kind of like professional development or, or human development way, but not in, in terms of giving close, sustained strategic attention to my writing. And I mean, I've just been on my own. Yeah. And I right. think that's, I think it's an incredibly rare experience, but it brings me to another thing, which is like, well, what's the benefit to the writer and what's the benefit to the reader of passing through one of these kind of sanctified. Right. Platforms? And when you had people like Gottlieb who had, were their own independent sources of authority or the great yeah. editors of The New Yorker, that was a counterweight to literary academia. So if you think about The New Yorker, yeah. the, the transition from your marquee critic being James Wood to it being Merva Emra is a transition from somebody who has kind of a cagey and semi-hostile relationship to academic ways of apprehending these things that would himself he doesn't have a phd but i think he yeah. is trained by post-structuralists but he was very independent of that institution whereas somebody like emra has one foot completely in it yeah. as a tenured professor and is bringing the values of that institution into the new yorker well and so i guess that brings me back to the sort of the way i put it to you at the beginning of, of this section of the discussion which is am i right that there is a new thing so am I right that this type of writing was able to bleed into the larger intellectual literary ecosystem in a way that made a difference? Is this a new thing or is it just sort of continuous? And I guess when you're drawing the comparison between Wood and Emre, that's a discontinuity. But I'm wondering, yeah. like, am I just making this up? Have there always been a significant number of humanities PhDs who've been populating the important magazines and newspapers and writing about things in a way that bring in the current theories and styles and ways of thinking about things from the academy. I think you're probably right. It seems to me that the big kind of magazines like The New Yorker or The New Republic, they often had a kind of antagonistic relationship to academic discourse, particularly in the post-structuralist era. So like the New Republic in the 90s or the 2000s when Leon Wieseltier was the literary editor would publish these long, devastating reviews by people who weren't academics or were sort of renegade academics of like a Frederick Jameson or Cornell West or people like that. And I feel like there's been a much closer mutual embrace between academia and those kinds of publications. But as for the, I think the academic diaspora of PhDs who are writing independently is definitely new, and it's just enabled by technology that didn't exist before. Do you feel like you have a sense of what you see as your literary, intellectual kind of predecessors, ancestors, influences? You know, who are you trying to be like from the 60s or the 30s or the 20s? Oh, probably... um, I read Harold Bloom and Camille Paglia very early. Um, mm-hmm. So them, uh, they they were pretty big influences. Susan Sontag, Cynthia Ozick, um, 
generally people who were able to call upon a certain amount of literary learning and experience, but make it meaningful to a broader public. And also I like, and this is another thing that has to do with the character of this group of PhDs writing in the wild. I do like a kind of uh, contrarian quality, uh, a little bit of yeah. a, you should say something that that that's provocative, that provokes. And the, the line between that and what I was complaining about Yang earlier is definitely thin, <laughs> especially the way that's developed with the, the post-left, if you're familiar with that phenomenon. No, um, post-left. I don't know who that is. Like the- You tell me. <laughs> the- uh, you know, the, the Red Scare podcast and its <laughs> extended audience uh, okay. uh, or, or the Dime Square scene in New yeah, York. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, and if you ever follow those people, they're to the point now where they're saying things like, I'm not a libtard, but I don't think Black people are inherently inferior to white people. <laughs> it's like, well, that that's a relief. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank God you're not a libtard. You you want to be careful. You don't completely sell out your intellectual birthright or, or basic human dignity with things like that. But I do like things that have a certain edge that that kind of insert themselves forcefully into a conversation. It's interesting. One thing that popped into my head while you were talking is you'd have to say that one of the things that this group has brought into the discourse is Foucault in a much more central way, that I think that one of my frustrations with the New York Review of Books, which I loved for a long time, I still think it's a good publication, and, and I haven't read it the last few years, so this may have changed, was like, it was as if Foucault didn't exist. And there were probably mm -hmm. a few other people in that category. Like, it was as if a few of these sort of, you know, giants of sort of post-1960 theory just didn't exist. Right. And I've never been a big fan of those writers, though I read the normal amount you read in, in academia, but I did internalize their way of looking at things, which is why, again, this might scandalize some people, but you can't just say two plus two equals four. We have unmediated <laughs> access to reality. No, we don't. How yeah. could we? <laughs> so, um, so the way I would put it is there's a sensibility associated with those yeah. writers that I think can be valuable. It's not like there was a blacklist. It was just a sort of organic functioning of the media where it did seem for a long time. It was as if some of the contemporary sort of recent developments in the academy after 1960 or 1970 didn't exist in the New Yorker or the New York Review books or the New York right. Times magazine. And and so part of what's happened is that, that those things have broken into it. For you, who are your influences? Who are your key? So not the people you want to write like, but the people who you kind of assimilated during your PhD, who you see as having shaped the way mm. you look at the world. Uh, I'm probably going to out myself as a kind of Philistine um, because I, well, not to do my whole life story, but I entered academia in 2006, when I was like 24, I didn't know anything, yep. but it was just after the Iraq war. And I was, I had taken a very hard turn into Marxism. <laughs> and so I entered graduate school thinking, oh, I want to be like Frederick Jameson, Edward Said, Georg Lukács from an earlier generation. And then I eventually came to understand that that way of thinking could only instrumentalize literature for a political end that I no longer saw as plausible. Yeah. So I gave that up and ended up writing a dissertation defending art for art's sake as it took shape in, in the modernist novel. 
And really, that just ended up taking me back to people like Bloom and Palia via like Oscar Wilde, just going back and reading Oscar Wilde. (laughs) Uh Uh, And so I never, I don't know if I could name a, a canonical theorist of that era that really did it for me. I was more interested in like renegade figures like Wilde and the way that produced later independent essayists like Sontag or like Palia. Well, so this, and I think this is one of the posts you sent me where you talk about both the kind of sociological role, but it's also kind of the motivating ethos of academics. I mean, can you lay that out for me? I'm not going to do justice to it. I found it really interesting. Uh, Yeah. Remind me which piece I sent you. You sent me uh, Platonic Complex, White Rage, and Critical Capital Half Against Marxism criticism. Yes. So in the piece Platonic Complex, which was one of my Substack newsletters, I was drawing from a lecture I saw on YouTube that was one of the Great Books Teaching Company lectures from the 90s by Darren Staloff. And he was explicating the sociologist Alvin Goldner's theory of the new class of intellectuals, that this was a new class of, of figures who with the secularization of knowledge, they become independent from the church, they become affiliated with universities, but then they go out to the public as teachers, high school teachers, independent writers, and become this source of social authority. And they end up having a relation to the state necessarily, because the state too is kind of decoupled from the church. So where are they going to get their authority? Well, they get it from the expertise of the intellectual class. And where Staloff, the YouTube lecturer who had been the teaching company lecturer, who's still, I think, a professor somewhere of history, he said, this isn't a new class. The the intelligentsia or the intellectuals are the oldest class in human history. They're the priests. It's the priests and the peasants. And What's new in modernity is these kind of low civilizations run by by merchant classes, essentially, to yeah. whom the intellectual is hostile. And so the intellectual is always taking up these ideologies that they say are on behalf of the exploited, like Marxism. But actually what they do is they legitimate the intellectual's own reconquest of the state. And my position was, okay, fine, but that's not necessarily what I see myself as doing or the the function or the goal I see myself as serving. I want to write things that circulate in ways that are unpredictable and don't necessarily legitimize any particular governing authority, which I guess does take us back to a kind of Edward Said or Noam Chomsky left-wing anarchist point. So when you think about your dissertation and you were talking about Bloom and Paglia and trying to kind of write about, but I guess also advocate for, legitimize an art for art's sake perspective, which I think you would suggest is in at least distinct from, if not in opposition to this effort to kind of take over the state or at least exert influence over it. Is there a theoretical grounding for that? Or is there, I guess, just an intuition in some sense? that can be articulated through beautiful language in Oscar Wilde or something like beautiful, persuasive, rhetorically Mm. compelling language, but not a sort of theoretical foundation in the sense that people in the academy tend to like to give things. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Or there's a way in which it becomes self-legitimizing in its performance. So my argument was, I don't want to drown your audience in these 
theoretical subtleties, but the traditional Marxist argument against the modernist novel was it becomes very subjective, stream of consciousness narration, a very involuted use of language. It turns its back on the great reformist mission of Dickens or the mission to describe society of Balzac, and it becomes this very self-involved masturbatory exercise in James Joyce and Virginia Woolf. But my argument was, well, their novels actually are portraying the inner life in ways that make the audience aware of its own inner life, which makes them self-critical inhabitants of their societies in ways that a more external mapping of a Balzac might not necessarily do. So mm -hmm. by by eschewing the social role, it has a diffuse beneficial social effect. You were trying to legitimize the modernist novel and art for art's sake from a basically a Marxist perspective. That somehow it will yeah. move us closer to the revolution, even though it doesn't look like it is. I probably couched it that way 10 years ago when I was writing the dissertation in ways yeah. I would now. Um, yeah. But I, I do think the way I'd put it now is it provides you tools. It provides its readers tools for being free, yeah, free members of society. Well, and, and I'm always talking about kind of tent, kind of constructive tension between a few different things. But one of the tensions, I think, is a kind of movement back and forth between a sort of sociological analysis of person as member of class or of class, and we function in this way, and then a kind of stepping outside and an evasion of that. And I think what I would assume is a kind of at root an intuition that is not adequate to capture, you know, the fullness of human existence and all of our reasons for living. And some people would kind of root that in a spiritual worldview. I mean, I don't have much of a spiritual worldview, so I just don't root it at all. I just, right. <laughs> in a sense, that feels right to me, that it's like, it is useful to look at what are the sort of economic or cultural or ideological reasons that we hold the interest that we do, that we've evolved the way we do, that we are this way with respect to our membership in this class. That is a super interesting and powerful way of looking at the world but it runs the risk of reducing us just to fungible members of a class, which doesn't seem to capture actually what our experience as being a human being is. And I think what was that there was a piece where you're critiquing, who is it who uses, was it Stephen Shaviro or something? You yeah. The graphic novelist, comic artist, Grant Morrison, as an example of his particular theory. And then at the end of the day, and I forget, maybe it was the other one was J.G. Ballard or something like that, but uses writers of fiction of, of artistic production as not just evidences of a theory, but almost theory in another medium or something like that, fully translatable into theory. Really saying he misinterpreted them, but I think you're also saying that you almost fundamentally, intrinsically misunderstand them if in any way you try and reduce them into a pure translation of like an intellectual proposition. Yeah, it, it wasn't even so much that he misinterpreted Morrison's work is that he just didn't capture the emotional flavor of it. And so it, it came to serve for a somewhat chilly, steely, philosophical or political manifesto. Whereas if you read it, those intellectual currents are there, but it, it's much more sort of warm and unpredictable and, and subversively funny. And all these kinds of affective dimensions of the work go missing when you try to translate it into a political goal. I think I guess I'd say the same thing of your work. And maybe part of the lines I'm trying to draw around this group of intellectuals is that on some level, their sort of motivation is not to, above all, put forth an argument, but to use ideas and theory 
in a more sort of play, playful, creative way that create that creates these sort of effective states or something like that. Yeah, and grasping towards something, but I at least no. with you, I think that's pretty clear that you see your writing as a kind of creative endeavor and not sort of purely as a theoretical or argumentative or critical endeavor. Yes, I once gave a lecture to a class on the life, the intellectual life of Susan Sontag, and she had this idea, she took it back. She travels from the left to the center. And somebody at the end of the lecture said, why are, Why would we read this woman? She never came to any useful conclusion. <laughs> she never, right. And I and I said, yeah, but what a life, what a mind, what a what a body of work, you know, the mind in motion like that. It's just beautiful to, to see that, I thought. And so it's worth reading for that reason, not because you carry away any particular message. It's interesting to take it back to Yang. One of the motives for me writing my review, and maybe in, in some sense, it's not so much soft peddling my criticism of the book, but just not foregrounding that in any meaningful way. I have a paragraph where I'm like, well, you know, yeah, it's a bunch of essays thrown together, let's be honest. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Is that my experience of that book and his writing is that there is something beautiful and exhilarating about a mind of that quality in, in action. Yeah. And say what you will about the book, lob all of the kind of legitimate criticisms you want at it. That's precious and rare. And fuck you for sort of reducing it down to its theoretical yeah. propositions. You know, fuck you, like the guy who reviewed it in the New York Times, who's like, well, he didn't adequately point to the history of Asian American activism. And I'm like, you're missing the point. Like, <laughs> all of these are fair criticisms in a sense. But here you are, you're a book critic or you're a reader in the world. And so much of what comes across your plate is just mediocre crap. Mm -hmm right? Maybe theoretically correct or theoretically defensible, but just there's no excitement to reading it. There's no sense of a really alive mind at work. And here, once in a while, you get something that's yeah. like exciting. And that's mostly what we should be saying, right? right? Either mostly what we should be saying, or, or that's what I saw the role of my piece was. I think your piece was a little bit different but your piece sort of justified itself. And there was a really good piece in the point too. There's a really good review in the point too that I think what I would put in this class too, which is you're using Yang to yourself be exciting and alive and intellectually interesting, which is another move that I'm happy to see if you can pull it off, right? If you can make your writing an interesting dynamic piece of writing, that's fine if this other book is kind of subordinate to it in a way. But what I wanted to do was be subordinate to the book. Right. And just like, if you want to know what's going on right now, if you want to understand what's going on, this is a book you have to read. You can ignore these other hundred books. This is a book you have to read. Right. And you had that binary and something between the sort of sociological role of the academy. And you almost said this was defensible with kind of draining things of their sort of subversive or destabilizing content or energies so that they can be preserved in the sort of museum for utility and use of other later generations. Right. So, I mean, right. Said that's, that's the role, that's the sociological role of the academy. Right. Yeah. I'm trying not to be in the museum yet. <laughs> uh, hopefully I end up in the museum because the, uh, the other option would be the garbage heap. So that I think is the legitimate function of the academy is keeping things out of the garbage heap. But I'm not trying to be in there while I'm alive. Yeah. Do you believe that about the academy? that that's actually a legitimate sort of defensible 
function that there is also some, there is in a sense, something valuable about that treatment of what others might call great literature or art or works of philosophy in a, in a sort of intrinsically kind of irreverent or irreverent way um, that, that neutralizes its sort of destabilizing content. I think it's legitimate at the most practical level because you just literally wouldn't have these things still in existence if it weren't for the efforts of the trained art restorer or the trained textual editor. <laughs> like that's where my anarchism stops. Like we do need the closest approximation to the correct text of an author. We we don't want the paintings to decay. Um, so I think that's like the 19th century academy, though, right? I mean, in a sense, that's a sort I of... think there are still people doing that, though, aren't yeah. there? Oh, there is. There is. <laughs> so I wouldn't want them to stop. But yeah, no, you're right. There is something there's something so devitalizing about certain kinds of academic approaches that you don't want to fully defend it. As someone who almost entirely just writes for yourself in the sense of I mean, you have plenty of readers, but but is, does not have an editor to whom he's reporting. How do you decide what to write? You know what the next post on the on the Substack is going to be. It's it's not calculated. It's just whatever interests me that week. Yeah, yeah. I don't. What's the I, next thing? What are you mid post on right now? That's a good question. I usually I write them Sunday morning. I write them in Starbucks in downtown Minneapolis. <laughs> Sometimes I decide that day, but I might. I've been thinking there's a whole discourse after Cormac McCarthy died about his marriages and he basically his wife told him to get a job and he basically told her to hit the bricks and there was some controversy over whether this was good or not uh, i guess it's an interesting question about whether it's good or not something like that there's something again it seems like everybody's dying all of a sudden but with gottlieb's death two days after mccarthy somebody had tweeted that he was as important as mccarthy the editor you know who mm -hmm. wasn't he wasn't mccarthy's editor but he was uh, this high-powered editor i was thinking is that true um, so maybe something like that, but but if something important happens between now and Sunday, I might write about that too. You ever think about writing a nonfiction book? Um, probably not a sustained argument. Probably yeah. a collection of pieces that somebody can criticize for just being a collection of pieces. <laughs> I feel like my doctoral dissertation was enough. I did my time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, dirty, not so hidden secret of like the whole like nonfiction book world is like, including mine, like 90% of the stuff out there is just a, I mean, I guess there's the collection of essays written for disparate pieces, but then there's like my book exit, right. You know, it's six, six mini biographies. I mean, is there a thread connecting them? Like I can make the case, like I could come up with a plausible sounding answer to that, but yeah. Well, you weave you weave motifs through. I can do. see. Yeah, you've tied it together pretty well. I thought, <laughs> but it's rare and impressive when I come across a nonfiction book that really fully coherently feels like a book in the sense that most novels do. That is an impressive yeah. accomplishment. Well, John, thank you so much for doing this. This is really interesting. I feel more secure in my hypothesis. I feel like I still have work to do in terms of articulating exactly um what it is but i feel more secure that there's something there yeah great i'm glad to help <laughs> thanks and for having me on thanks very much dan thanks john bye bye this was an episode of eminent americans the podcast if you like the podcast subscribe to it uh and subscribe to the newsletter of the same name eminent americans the newsletter 
Recommend it to your friends. Rate it on the platform on which you listen to it. Beam good vibes about it out into the universe. Thank you to my producer, Nick Worthen, and thank you to you, my listeners. This is a labor of love for me, and I do genuinely appreciate your attention, particularly if you've gotten all the way here to the end of all things. Feel free to email me with questions, thoughts, observations, even diatribes at djops at gmail.com. That's D as in Daniel, J as in James, ops as in ops or Oppenheimer at gmail.com. Have a great day.